Into the Weird, episode 43, The Big Enchilada. Welcome to Into the Weird, a comic book podcast where we chronicle the weird and wonderful world of Marvel comics in the Bronze Age. From 1970 to 1985, nothing is too strange, too offbeat, too wacko for us to cover. I'm your hoary host, Herm. Thank you for joining me on this comic-filled journey into the weird. So, Into the Weird has been off the air for a while, but after much procrastination, I finally brought the show back. From now on, we'll have weekly episodes of just under an hour in length, probably, available every weekend, discussing, of course, Doctor Strange, the FF, the Defenders, Marvel's Merry Mutants, comic book chop, Socky, Hyborian Age, Shenanigans, Marvel Horror, just about everything a true believer like you could wish for. To longtime subscribers of the show, much love to you guys for sticking with us. And for you new listeners, thank you for giving us a go. But before we start, I'd like to give a shout out to our unofficial sponsor, the great power metal band, Seven Kingdoms, for their song In the Walls, which you just heard, and which they, of course, so generously allow us to use as our intro tune. Check them out on Spotify, iTunes Music, or follow their Facebook page for updates on live shows and new releases. All right, let's get to our comic that we'll be dissecting today, and it's a good one, weirdos. The reason why I picked it is that it's the lead-up to our next big Doctor Strange event from 1976, and the start of an epic rivalry between the Doc and one of his most implacable foes. So without further waffling, the issue that I selected is Tomb of Dracula, number 43, from 1976. Uh, This is the classic tale called Paul Butterworth 
The Night Staker. Written and edited, of course, by Marf Wolfman, penciled by Gene the Dean Cullen, inked and colored by Tom Palmer, and lettered by the great John Constanza. And the cover is by Bernie Wrightson. So, the summary, or the synopsis, as we call it, of this issue, is as follows. Our story starts in the offices of the Boston Bugle, where one Paul Butterworth, a reporter for the aforementioned rag, is frantically writing up a story of how he stumbled upon a series of mysterious and gruesome murders on New Year's Eve. This epistolary device, employed by Marf Wolfman, provides the perfect cue for a series of flashbacks and gives a slight nod to the original Dracula novel, which of course was told through letters, journal entries, and news clippings. So as Paul writes up this story, he hints that the very act of printing it could spell his doom, as he has made an enemy of a bloodthirsty killer who now seeks to tear him limb from limb. In spite of the spine-melting confession, he continues to chronicle how he came to suspect that vampires were involved in the New Year's Eve killings. Now, in full flashback mode, he writes how he heard on the radio about a book written by a hack writer called Harold H. Harold, who claims to have witnessed the Lord of Vampires, the big enchilada himself, the one and only Dracula, in action. Paul then visits Harold and learns about the ongoing battle between Dracula and a group of vampire hunters, which of course includes Blade, Rachel Van Helsing, Frank Drake, and the wheelchair-bound Quincy Harker, familiar figures to us Todd fans. So Paul becomes fascinated by this world of vampires, and he decides to interview these intrepid hunters of the undead to get a first-hand account of their battles with Dracula. However, his investigation leads him directly into the path of the dangerous vampire lord who becomes pissed when Paul tries to go all paparazzi on him by snapping a few pics. He manages to scare off Dracula by bumblingly revealing a crucifix around his neck, but this does not stop old Drac from tracking Paul and the vampire hunting cadre to their hotel later that night, where... Dracula then proceeds to make mincemeat of Blade, Quincy, Rachel, and particularly Frank Drake, whom he stylishly defenestrates. Paul, again advertently, saves the day by brandishing his crucifix after shaking off a brief hypnotic spell placed upon him by Drac. The Lord of Vampires flees but swears revenge, promising to pay Paul a private visit. Retiring to the offices of the Boston Bugle, the flashback sequences end as Paul, now finished with his story and packing a gun loaded with silver bullets along with a stake in the shape of a cross, prepares to defend himself from Dracula's imminent attack. Despite his weapons and a healthy dose of foolhardy bravado, Paul proves no match for Dracula when the monster storms the offices of the Boston Bugle, totaling the place. Just as Dracula's about to snack on Paul's pulsating jugular, 
the first light of dawn starts to shine through the windows, forcing the vampire to flee before he is destroyed by the sunlight. Paul is left with a wild story to tell, but is promptly relegated to writing for the Ask Miss Annie section of the paper when his editor discovers that vampires don't appear in photographs, making Paul's story worthless. Despite the setback, Paul Butterworth remains determined to uncover the truth about the world of vampires and bring the horrors of the night to light. Now, okay, that's our synopsis. So before we get into the Bronze Age brilliance and uh, Mighty Marvel missteps segment of this issue, the time has come for me to mention the cult favorite character that Marv Wolfman pays homage to in this issue. You probably know him and you probably love him. And of course, he's none other than TV's Carl Kolchak, the Night Stalker. That's right, Carl Kolchak from the 1970s TV movies and TV series, The Night Stalker. So for those of you who don't know, uh, Kolchak is a fictional character, reporter and supernatural investigator created by one Jeff Rice. And he was first introduced in the novel The Night Stalker in 1972. Uh, The character was then later portrayed by the great actor Darren McGavin in two made-for-TV movies, uh, the first being The Night Stalker from 1972 and then the follow-up The Night Strangler from 1973, uh, which were extremely popular. Uh, They led to the creation of the television series Kolchak The Night Stalker, which ran from 1974 to 1975. And in the TV movies and the series, Kolchak uh, typically investigates mysterious crimes with supernatural uh, elements. And he often comes into contact into contact with these supernatural entities or monsters. And um, he often also uh, is at odds with both law enforcement and these supernatural forces at the same time. Uh, he's portrayed as a kind of an unconventional reporter, hard-nosed. Uh, he stops at nothing to uncover the truth behind the strange events that he wants to report on, and of course, brilliantly played by Darren McGavin, who's one of my favorites, uh, favorite TV actors of all time. So the TV series itself, Kolchak, The Night Stalker, uh, ran for 20 episodes. It was very well received as well, just like the movies. It became a cult classic and influenced later TV shows in the horror and supernatural genre. Um, And it is credited, officially credited as being the uh, the inspiration behind Chris Carter's X-Files. So Chris Carter, a massive fan of Kolchak the Night Stalker, and that influenced him into creating one of the greatest uh, supernatural series of all time. Now, as for me personally, I came to Kolchak uh, in a roundabout way. I first read this issue of Tomb of Dracula in the early 80s, and... um, uh, I didn't know who Kol- Kolchak was. I didn't know that Paul Butterworth was based off of the character. Um, and of course, this was after Tomb of Dracula had wrapped up, but I was still picking up back issues where I could find them. And uh, subsequently, I picked up a few issues, uh, maybe issue 45 or 46 of Tomb of Dracula. And in the letter columns, someone mentioned that, you know, Kol- Kolchak was obviously Paul Butterworth. And um, that's when I finally caught on and 
tried to track down the Kolchak TV series and the movies. It took me a couple of years, uh, but I finally saw everything. And then by then I was already firmly a Kolchak nut. Um, I had read my copy of Tomb of Dracula 43 to tatters by then and had to pick up a new, uh, a new one. And I'd also read the two Kolchak novels. So great stuff. Uh, absolute fan. Love it. Um, and I hope that you might be inspired to try it out yourself, listeners, if you haven't seen it yet. But I'm, I'm sure most of you have. But okay, let's unpack the Bronze Age Brilliance and Mighty Marvel missteps in this issue. So as I mentioned, the cover is by horror artist Goat, Bernie Wrightson, probably my favorite comic book artist of all time. Uh, unfortunately, it falls. this cover falls into the missteps column for me. It's definitely not one of Bernie's better covers. Uh, it shows Dracula rising from his own grave to assault a blonde girl in a nightgown who has mysteriously decided to wander a cemetery at night, probably a somnambulist of some kind. And then the cover will obviously make more sense once you read the interiors, but that's not really my problem with it. Um, it's more the figure work. It's not up to Bernie's usual standards. I think Dracula looks a little clunky uh, or ill-proportioned, maybe. And the girl is pretty, though, but she doesn't look like a Wrightson lady at all. Uh, makes me wonder if a heavy-handed inker might be to blame for this cover. Uh, but overall, I'd say Gene Cullen's corner box art is probably the standout element um, of this cover. Uh, of course, the cover also features the badge uh, Comicdom's number one fear magazine. Uh, that's definitely repurposing the famous Fantastic Four comic book pronouncement, the world's greatest comic magazine. So I like that, and it definitely falls under the Bronze Age brilliance column. The final entry under missteps, though, is the obvious fact that Dracula does not seem to have any concept of time, or he doesn't own a timepiece, a pocket watch, or or anything like that, which would have told him not to storm the offices of the Boston Bugle so near to sunrise. Um, now, of course, I understand that Dracula's characterization in the Marvel Universe um, paints him as a monster out of time. He he usually eschews the use of technology. But, you know, it's silly that he doesn't seem to be able to sense the coming of the dawn and attacks, literally attacks Paul Butterworth in the offices of the Boston Bugle 10 minutes before sunrise uh, or something like that. Uh, but perhaps he was truly desperate to stop Paul publishing that story and revealing uh, Dracula's existence to the world. It seems unlikely, though, because earlier in the comic, we saw Drac brawling with a whole squad of cops <laughs> in the middle of Boston traffic. Um, so, yeah, that makes no sense. But still, fun stuff. Lots of great stuff in here. So the humor in this issue, of course, is palpable. And one of the things that probably makes it great for me personally, um, all courtesy, of course, of Marv Wolfman's writing chops, uh, Paul Butterworth is a cardboard cutout of Carl Kolchak in that he uses dry humor and the same sharp wit that Kolchak does. And the confrontations with Dracula are all comical, but still fraught with menace. So Harold H. Harold, the hack writer that's also a recurring character in 
Tomb of Dracula. He provides a great object of scorn for the incredulous uh, Paul Butterworth. And we see the comedic aspects of Harold's character with Dracula when Blade contradicts Harold's story, the fanciful events that he cooked up uh, with his own gritty blow-by-blow recap. And then Dracula, of course, mows down the hunters like so much chaff when... And that really cements his badassery. And that's right after the interview Paul conducted in um, the Hunting Cadre's hotel room. And we get the added cherry on the cake when Drac executes two of his signature moves. Uh, number one being a brutal backhand bitch slap, which he uses to flatten Quincy Harker and his wheelchair. And then, of course, uh, secondly, uh, Drac tossing Frank Drake out of a window. Now, usually he throws him through a wall or something uh, more solid, but uh, this still counts, I think. And, of course, Drax's dialogue is, again, amazing. It's grandiloquent. It's epic. Uh, we get such lines as um, the following. This is all from Dracula. A, you dare attempt to photograph Dracula? And then he says, give me your toy, Blade. <laughs> And uh, drop the damn crucifix. Toss it aside like the gutter trash it is. (laughs) Lots of blasphemy in this issue. And then he says at one point, Does this perverse handling of religious garbage never cease? (laughs) Give me that totem of lies. And then at one point he goes, Fah! You wouldn't know civilization from a barbaric cesspool. (laughs) And then he says that uh, Dracula is sickened by your presence, Toad. And finally, um, he says to Paul Butterworth, I will someday return to this flea trap to rend you asunder. (laughs) So all classic uh, Marvel Dracula lines there. And then another great bit is the name of Butterworth's ed- editor, who uh, obviously constantly chews him out, uh, but his name's Paul Lomenzo, and that's after Kolchak's own editor, Tony Vincenzo. <laughs> so that's hilarious. And then finally, um, and this is definitely deliberate on Wolfman's part, the characters in Butterworth's flashbacks don't behave like they normally do in the regular issues of the series. And this obviously shows that the story is colored by Paul's own subjectivity as he recounts the tale while typing it up. He's probably exaggerating a lot or at least embellishing it uh, like writers are wont to do. And that's why Blade and Quincy and uh, Rachel and Frank appear almost um, uh, as comical versions of themselves while Paul himself is cast in this uh, heroic light. So, yeah, I love this. And then, of course, Gene Colan and Tom Palmer on the art. They again deliver deliver a masterclass in comic book art here. Uh, The entire issue is filled with these panels that are just jaw-dropping. They're drool-inducing splash pages and action panels out the wazoo. It's crazy. And uh, there's a real sense of motion in the action panels, too, Um as when there's this panel where Butterworth sort of hurls a desk into Dracula's path in his attempts to flee. And you can, you can almost feel the movement happening. Uh, and then of course the, 
the scene where Frank Drake goes flying through the window. That's absolutely amazing. And there's a, there's a bit where he, where Drac also tosses Paul himself through a wall. Uh, probably because he missed doing that to Frank Drake earlier on. So yeah, overall, a fun issue. Great issue, really. I'd give this a solid uh, four out of five stars, or, or let's say a solid four out of five fangs. We'll use that rating um, system here. So uh, remember to, yeah, tell me what you think, weirdos. Write us at sinkintotheweird at gmail.com and let us know your thoughts, and I'll read them out on the show and uh, give you a shout-out on the next episode. So that concludes our first segment. On to our next one. Uh, Sadly, the recommendations of Ragador are now defunct, but the Lord of the Dark Dimension, Dormammu's got something else waiting in the wings. So let's see what that is. We'll be back after a quick break. It's time to take a ride down the audiobook trail. I am John McLean. Welcome to the podcast. I ended up discovering the world of audiobooks and thinking, you know what? I've found my spot. We'll do bloopers because I have thousands of them. I love a good story. And, you know, I have to admit, as far as vocations go, this one's pretty cool. This is the Audiobook Trail Podcast. We're going to drop a 30-minute episode every two weeks. Audiobooktrail.com. again from the dark dimension. Bear with me as I might be a bit rusty after these many months of indolent inactivity. The recommendations of Ragador are sadly no more as old Rags has quit these reeking dimensional plains for greener pastures. But never fear, While wandering in a fugue state through the multiverse recently, I serendipitously happened upon a nuke I have dubbed the Shelves of the Seraphim, an abandoned spider-infested interdimensional ruin of a library, I call it. Or it's more like an astral man cave filled with goodies that I can't wait to recommend. I have generously submitted my discoveries on these shelves to that irritating tick, the podcast host you call Herm. Hopefully, he can introduce you properly to them and uh, make it worth your time. After all, I wouldn't want boredom to do away with you before my Felting flames scorch your worthless flesh, now would I? (laughs) 
All right, we're back with some Dormammu-sponsored goodies from the so-called Shelves of the Seraphim. It's a bit predictable, but we're not going to be recommending a comic book this week. Instead, in lieu of our topic from earlier, I'm introducing the entire Kolchak filmography and book series, of course, the TV series as well, to you weirdos out there. If you haven't seen it or read it, get it, <laughs> download it, come on, watch it, buy it, uh, cherish it, fondle it. If you have and you're already a fan, watch it again and then let me know your thoughts. Uh, but be warned, I am obsessed with the franchise, so uh, you could say I'm a bit of a stalker of the Night Stalker. Uh, I might not handle criticism of the series well, so fair warning. But we'll have to wait and see what you weirdos say. So what does the Kolchak library entail? Well, simply put, it's the two made-for-TV movies that started the whole craze in the 70s, as well as the TV series that followed. And here's a brief overview for any of you newcomers to the franchise. The first movie, The Night Stalker from 1972, was adapted from Jeff Rice's novel uh, by none other than the legendary Richard Matheson, horror writer supreme and, of course, writer of a bajillion, no, not that many, but a lot of Twilight Zone episodes as well as many screenplays in Hollywood. And the story of the first movie follows Kolchak as he investigates a series of murders in Las Vegas, bizarre murders. Uh, they appear to have been committed by a vampire. Uh, victims have been exsanguinated and so forth. And as Kolchak delves deeper into this mysterious uh, case, he encounters resistance, of course, from the police force who hates him, hates his guts. Uh, and he eventually comes face to face with the supernatural killer. And uh, in the sequel, well, not really a sequel. Yeah, kind of a sequel. The Night Strangler from 1973 uh, Carl has settled in Seattle and he's investigating a series of murders that are connected to an uh, enigmatic uh, centuries-old entity. Uh, as he works to uncover the truth behind these killings, he must also deal with the skepticism, yet again, of the local Seattle police, who despise him, of course, and also he has to deal with the growing danger posed by this ancient evil that he's trying to expose. Both of these movies feature Kolchak's unique brand of uh, journalism, if you can call it that, as well as his encounters with the strange and bizarre elements of this uh, unique supernatural world that the franchise presents, this Kolchak mythology, if you will. And these films are classic examples of the 1970s horror and suspense craze. Uh, they're just a whole lot of fun. But they still manage to be creepy and atmospheric. There's some genuinely scary bits in both of these films. Um, <clears throat> and I'd also like to just mention my favorite episodes from the TV series. There are 20 episodes, as we uh, said before, but f five of them are my favorites. I think they're classics unto themselves. The very first episode of the series, episode one, The Ripper, is uh, a great episode. Kolchak investigates a series of murders in Chicago that resemble the work of Jack the Ripper. 
And then episode two as well, one of my favorites, The Zombie. Uh, that's the title. Kolchak investigates a case involving a reanimated corpse, leading him to a voodoo priestess. That's some fun bits. And you know how much I love evil priestesses. And then episode seven, The Devil's Platform. This is a bit of a politically charged episode where Kolchak investigates a series of deaths, strange deaths that seem to be connected to a political candidate uh, who's made a deal with some form of a satanic entity. Uh, And then episode eight, Bad Medicine. Kolchak discovers a supernatural connection to a series of mysterious deaths uh, on a Native American reservation. And then episode nine, the Spanish Moss Murders, one of the most well-known episodes. And here Kolchak is on the trail of a killer who's using Spanish moss to strangle his victims. So if you're interested in the books as well, uh, you can pick them up. Uh, They're available as a single collection, a single volume called the Kolchak Papers on places like Amazon. I don't know if there's a paperback copy or a hardcover copy still available there, but you might be able to pick it up in secondhand bookstores. The Kindle edition is available as well as the Audible um, audiobook edition. And uh, it's available on Audible Plus for free, so you don't need to spend a credit on it. It's a whole lot of fun. Give it a listen. I've listened to it twice um, and recently. Uh, so great. Really, really fun. And um, now, before we wrap things up, I need to mention a quick promo here. Today's Into the Weird episode is brought to you by Pictory AI. I have recently become a Pictory affiliate because of my, you know, daytime work making educational videos. So Pictory is at the forefront of an AI-driven content producing revolution, really. Pictory is uh, AI-produced video-driven software that makes full videos from scripts that you feed it uh, or from websites or articles that you import and with automatic AI voices and subtitles to match. So this software has sped up my workflow tremendously. And if any of you weirdos out there are content creators uh, or YouTubers, and you're interested in making videos uh, or video podcasting even, which is now a thing, uh, or in marketing, uh, you can support Into the Weird by clicking on the affiliate link in this episode's description and checking out Pictory, the software. Uh, Pictory does have a free plan, uh, but if you decide to access one of the paid plans, which gives you more creation options, you can enter the code HERMAN29 and access a special offer. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes or on the podcatcher of your choice. This will help more listeners to find the show, and you can also email us at sinkintotheweird at gmail.com and please give our website at sinkintotheweird.com a look. Uh, There will be a podcast addendum post to supplement this week's episode. If you choose to honor us with a five-star review on iTunes, I'll assign a personal Bronze Age alter ego and origin story to you to be read on the show. So, What's happening in our next episode? Well, this coming Friday, 
Into the Weird will deliver its review of Black Panther 2, the MCU offering, which recently dropped on Disney+. Plus. I watched it in the theaters last year, but um, I was waiting to watch it a second time so that I could give it a proper review. So we'll discuss um, this movie uh, on Friday's episode, as well as my favorite Black Panther story from Don McGregor's Jungle Action Comics from the Bronze Age. And I'll also mention some new titles that I've been reading. There's some great stuff out at the moment from Marvel and from DC. Um, But until then, we'll say goodbye. I'll leave you, though, with a little oddball advice, weirdos. Stay cool, stay frosty, stay weird. But above all, stay away from those late-night deadline-beating writing sessions in the vampire-infested offices of the Boston Bugle. And you just might get out of here with your jugular vein intact. So that's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Catch you next week.